Hi y'all, it's Caitlin Breedlove. Welcome to the cold open for this episode of Fortification. We've had some of these shows sitting um, in the wings for a while and we're releasing them as a summer season. Uh, particularly in this time, they are really powerful even though they are not current. Um, as most of you know who listen to this show regularly, it's only semi-regularly produced because it's a love offering and it's nobody's full-time gig and so sometimes um, getting these out in the world just takes the time it takes and it has nothing to do with the quality of the conversation at all. Um, so this is a little bit of a different episode. It's actually a live recording of a conversation that happened between me, Malkia Devich Cyril, and Malachi Garza, and Gina Breedlove who you will have heard in episode five from this season as well in her solo interview for Fortification. It was a conversation that we had in person in front of a, a live audience in Oakland, California at the Mountaintop Gathering um, for Auburn. It feels a lifetime away that we were gathered with that many people in, in person. Um, but I remember the conversation very clearly because it was very, very emotional and, um, and I thought quite vulnerable and open in terms of sharing and several folks gave us feedback that it was one of the best conversations that happened in the gathering and people felt very connected really in large part due to the panel that I was able to interview. Um, some of the themes include finding joy in movement and community in the midst of loss, grief and transformation. There's also some interesting weaving in and out of um, organizing theory and practice given that uh, for a couple of us, we've known each other or been organizing near around each other for a long time. And so given sort of the political space, I think there was also some powerful conversations about resonance and what does or does not resonate in some of our progressive doctrines with, with people on the ground. For a transcript of this conversation and more resources, please visit auburnseminary.org front slash fortification. And so I'm, I'm trying to say that um, not just that romantic love is, is the uh, answer, but I'm saying that your family, the things that you care about, you know, whether maybe it's your garden, maybe it's, I, I don't know what it is, you know, but it's, it's the things that give your life meaning beyond the work, because the work is not enough. It's just not enough. And that's why I quit, because it wasn't enough. And I don't know what's next, you know. Maybe next I'll work in a hospice or maybe next I'll, I don't know what I'm going to do next. But I know, what I know for a fact is that without that family, without that garden, without that pet, without those friends, it doesn't mean anything. It's unimportant. If you're not fighting, if you're not living freedom, then what's the point of fighting for freedom? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Greetings, this is Caitlin Breedlove, and you're listening to Fortification, Spiritual Sustenance for Movement Leadership. You are listening to Season 4, Episode 6. This final conversation is one I was so thrilled to facilitate during Auburn's mountaintop gathering called Joy and Resistance. It's a conversation between folks I deeply respect and admire about lessons on resilience, conflict, grief, and imagination. And when I was facilitating it, I knew that it just had to be part of this season of fortification because there were so many gems in it. The conversation took place between Malkia Devich-Ciro, Malachi Garza, and Gina Breedlove. 
Malkia Devitsiro is a writer, public speaker, lead founder, and now senior fellow at Media Justice. David Cyril is also a sci-fi nerd, a communication strategist, and a veteran in the movement for digital rights and freedom, a leader in the movement for Black lives, and the widowed spouse of comedian and editor Alana David Cyril, who died following an intense two-year battle with advanced cancer, relatively recently, I may add here. We have had the pleasure of having Malachi and Gina on as past guests and encourage you to listen to our previous interviews with each of them and learn more about them through their bios. Thank you again so much for your ongoing love and support over the last many years of this podcast. Please stay tuned. Good evening, everybody. I'm Caitlin Breedlove. I'm really happy to be here. Um, I'm really happy to be here tonight because of my work with Auburn, but also because I have a great deal of respect and love for, for this panel. Um, and I'm gonna let them introduce themselves in, in just a minute. Um, I wanted to say that uh, sometimes I go into a panel and I haven't given it actually that much thought, and this one I actually have given some thought and thought about each of you. And, um, you know, I think that one of the heavy things I've been thinking about a lot lately is, um, I think one of the most important James Baldwin quotes for me in this time is actually a really difficult quote that I think a lot of folks are grappling with, maybe difficult for some and not for others. Um, maybe y'all know what I'm about to say, but um, the quote is, I can't believe what you say because I see what you do. I can't believe what you say because I see what you do. And I see a lot of young organizers wearing that t-shirt. And every time I think like, what does that mean for them in this moment? What do they wanna share with the world in that? And then I think about all of the examples of where we've actually deeply lost trust of, of hundreds and thousands and millions of people who are actually quote with us, whatever that means, on a broader liberation agenda but are actually looking at the inconsistency between, and I would, I've been an organizer 20 years, so I feel like a lot of the problems that I see I have been part of creating. I'm not at a point in my life where I'm not keeping it real about that anymore. I, I think I've had a role, I know I've had a role. Um, but the gulf between who we say we are in our rhetoric and what we're doing is wide enough that a lot of folks won't jump it. They won't roll past it. Um, and I want to say that, and I, I would not even pretend to think that I would alter a quote, but when I think about all of these three people, I think actually about a, a different version of that, which is that I believe what you say because I see what you do. I believe what you say because I see what you do. And there are the other people in this room that I've been in deep relationship with that I believe what you say because I see what you do. And every day I'm trying to be the kind of organizer that folks can believe what I say because they see what I do. And I think that is, a, well, there's a lot of conversation about healing, y'all, right now. There's a lot of conversation about healing, but one of the conversations that's not enough about is how do we heal trust, broken, profound broken trust across race, across class, across sexuality and gender, across geography. I'm a red states person. I'm gonna keep living in red states. That's where I live. I have so much respect for folks who live here and other places, but I'm not going anywhere. And in that space, I'm trying to make that golf smaller every little day, and a lot of times I screw that up and actually really suck at it. Um, 
So I'm going to stop talking because I really want you to hear from them, but I want to say something to the three of them, which I feel like I've had different relationships to y'all's work, not even just personal care and connection, but to, to the work that each of you have brought into the world. And I find I'm, I'm not a very like publicly emotional person. Um, I just feel like the longer I've done this, the more gratitude I have for that work. And I just would ask this room, before we even hear from them, I would just ask people to share their gratitude for their work, the length of that work, the endurance of that work, all the things that that work has taken that actually I will never know, and we might never know. So please join me in thanking them for their work. A little bit later, I'm gonna have another drink and then I'm gonna ask us to count up the collective years of this work <laughs> that we've done. And then I'm gonna bring you all the number and it's, it's gonna be really shocking. No, <laughs> it's gonna be deep. Um, so I wanna actually start with the questions and I'd ask that when we answer the first question, just please introduce yourself in the way that, that you wanna be known in the space. Um, so Malkia, we're gonna start with you. I know you love that. Um, our first question tonight is, what is joy for you? What is resistance? And where do they intersect? Well, good evening. Um, my name is Malkia David Cyril. And um, I've, uh, for the last 20 years, I've been running the Center for Media Justice. Um, but I just quit. <laughs> so uh, it's no longer my job as of Friday this week, so thank you. Um, what, is, what is joy to me? Well, also I'll say um, I, I uh, well, okay. It's a question that I've spent a lot of time grappling with. Um, from 2016 to 2018, um, I was a primary caregiver for my wife who uh, had stage four cancer, and she died um, last October, um, October in 2018. And, um, um, you know, 15 years ago, I was also the caregiver, or 20 years ago, I was a caregiver for my mother, uh, who died of sickle cell anemia um, at the age of 59. And, um, 15, 20 years ago, when I was a caregiver for my mom, we did that for three and a half years, I started the Youth Media Council in 2002, and that's when my mom was diagnosed with end-stage sickle cell. Um, and 20 years later, you know, the organization has gone through multiple name changes and, <laughs> you know, whatever, but 20 years later, as I end my time there, um, I ended it also caring for my wife in hospice. So my, my career in this particular um, field has been, um, you know, end noted or in the parentheses of death. And so how, how then in that do you find joy? Um, I think about the fact that um, for every organizer that knocks on a door, you're asking someone who's suffering to 
move past that suffering into action? That's the question that is being asked. And the question is how then do people move to an activation point? Too often we think about anger as the propelling force, rage at the conditions. We think, as Marxism thought for a long time, that the conditions, the, the conditions themselves alone would propel people into action. And we've learned that that's just not the case. We learned that depending on whether you can transform grief into agency or whether grief transforms into apathy, that is the decision, that's the determination as to whether or not you move into liberation or into slavery, right? And I think that in order to do that, we have to stop assuming that joy is the opposite of grief. We are asking people in war zones, we're asking people who have lost their children, we're asking people who, we're asking people who have lost, some of whom have lost everything, to take a risk with us. That's not an academic exercise, that's hard to do. Um, I can say that for myself, um, the effort it takes to get up uh, when the things that you've counted on, the things that you care about, they're gone. Um, to, to make plans, to develop strategies for change when you can't figure out how to eat or you can't figure out where your next dollar is coming from or whatever, right? That's the only way to move through that is to find something you believe in is to find some reason to care. Find something that helps you get up in the morning. Now that, that's joy. It's not happiness. That's hallmark. That's bullshit. This is, we're talking about authentic joy. Joy that comes from um, being able, being connected, right? I think about joy as the opposite of alienation, not the opposite of grief. And the thing is that we live in an in a economic structure, a political structure that is, that is um, intends to alienate us, alienate us from the products of our labor, alienate us from each other, um, and alienate us from the natural world. Death is a natural experience, like birth, that many of us know nothing about, um, that we avoid and that we are afraid of. I am afraid of it. But if we can uh, move into, into that space of fear, if we can allow ourselves to dig in, I think that we will find more joy than we could ever imagine. And that is what I think helps us to be free. Mm. Starting it out with a, a few deep thoughts there, my friend. <laughs> Gina, can we go to you? Hey, family. My name is Gina Breedlove. I am a sound healer. I'm a medicine woman. My medicine is sound. I am also a grief doula. I use sound to move grief and rage out of the body. 
if we lived in a different time, my hut would be at the end of that path and you would come and see me for what ails you and you would bring me chickens and fruit and lay it in front of my door and you come on inside and I would use sound to reach inside of your solar plexus and pull out that thing. What that looks like these days is y'all just pay me money. <laughs> y'all pay a sister's rate. I'm all about lifting up and centering the healers out here. As healers are essential to movement work. And that's something I hear often. Um, Y'all will find that I digress quite a bit. Um, and the moon is full tomorrow and I'm going with her. I'm also a vocalist and a composer and an actor. Joy. is everything for me. Say more about that. I feel an immense amount of joy when I'm holding someone in my arms who is grieving that thing that happened 25 years ago that keeps showing up. The grief, the grief letting is joyous to me. I feel a great deal of joy in this moment, um, looking around this room and being inside of this circle and this ritual. I'm deeply grateful. I feel joy sitting next to Malkia and Malachi and Caitlin, folk I love and respect from afar. And this is a gorgeous opportunity. And so I've often wondered, is it um, wiring? Because I am wired this way. I, um, like so many healers, I came to this work through trauma. And, um, and so when things were happening to my body, horrible things, my spirit was hold tight. Morning comes. And so I've leaned on that and I lean on that to move through the world and to do the work that I do. Persistence. Resistance. I have a problem. I'm challenged by the word resistance. I know that's not popular. Um, in my spirit, resistance feels like pushing. Pushing back, pushing. Uh, pushing against energy, using my chi to keep something at bay. Resistance feels like that to me. I climb inside of the word persistence because it feels like something I can use my body weight for. You know, like um, something that is like breathing, like rolling over in my sleep, you know? And so I, um, yeah, that's how I feel about the word resistance and I know that is a very you know, often used and, you know, deeply centered word inside of our movements. And because I do work with folk who are exhausted, 
it is the first thing I take out of the body. You know? Um, and so, and I, and I source a lot of joy from the natural world. I got myself to a tiny town with red dirt and rivers. And, if, and it cares for me. The landscape takes care of me. And I know that we, I lived in Oakland for eight years, and, and so I would find beauty here and just go and immerse myself. And, um, and that would caretake my spirit as well. Uh, finding beauty. And when I lived in Brooklyn, because I'm from New York, and I had an apartment that faced a brick wall, I would lean into the light at different times of day on the wall. Um, and so... Um, finding these things that help me move through and keep moving and keep going. Um, so that's my offering for that answer. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. Malika? Wow. Wow. Uh, wow, it's like the lights came up and it's 2 a.m. at the club and everyone's... <laughs> Hey, everyone's really smart. Like, oh, okay, I'm here too. Um, totally a club moment. Been there before. Um, what? What an incredible offering um, already. Thank you both so much. Um, the first thing I, I thought about uh, was a this like a quote. I guess you call it a verse because it's in the Bible. It's like a quote from the Bible. Could say. <laughs> I'm gonna quote the Bible. I don't know who exactly quoted. One of those three, I guess. Um, but this, um, one of the things I find a lot of joy in humor. I find a lot of joy in humor. And I think I work so hard. And what we are against is so hard. And we break our hearts over and over in this work. And to laugh and to find joy and to be silly. Mac cracks me up all the time. And I think it's one of the reasons I have loved them for 20 plus years. Um, but this verse is a little more on the serious side. Um, and it's 2 Corinthians 4, verse eight and nine, which says, we are pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. And I think about this quote as we framed it and put it on my mother's wall when we were facing a cancer diagnosis that was, that was incredible. And I... I thought about having on the, the little picture had a rock and a stream flowing next to it, very like doctor's office <laughs> Then I thought like, what will be, if this grief is the rock and our fear is the rock, what is the water and how do we want to be shaped? Because there's no fire that we can bring. We must adapt and, and be water or are we the stone? And in those moments, it was our relationships and community that brought us joy, any joy, in the face of despair and poisons and everything. 
are our people are I had like notes that are all in something else, but <laughs> we had to basically work to use joy as an antidote and as joy of a practice of creation. Because when things are so bleak, there's no like word to fix it. There's no special thing. And so to find ways to use joy as an antidote to suffering was like a very intentional practice. And we found joy in memory and in sometimes, my granny would say, she's like 96 now, and she'll sometimes I'll go in there and she's like, hold on, I'm playing tennis. <laughs> I'm like, you ain't playing tennis, girl. You are bedridden, okay. But, and she said, when I close my eyes, I'm nine years old, and I'm playing tennis in Memphis. And it made me think about, sometimes even, sometimes I find weird, like I don't know if it's statistic or what, but joy in the, in the times where I've overcome and been sort of really low, right? Like 15 year old street kid, like looking for cigarette butts to smoke because I'm hungry. But now I think about, I'm in this foundation office telling them who to fund. Like, damn. Well, sometimes we would, and then we would play that game with her family. Remember when shit was four fucked up than this? Right? I actually feel a little better now. Right? And so I just, I guess what I'm saying is that I think um, our memory is a powerful place to go when what is around us is breaking our hearts. Um, and the, the other thing I'll say is that sharing the impacts of our work and of our joy with each other. I think I'm tired of going out for drinks or being in a meeting and people having so much negative stuff to say about this leader, about this organization, about this thing. It's negative, negative, negative. And so I, I had a guy one time, my friend Shaka, he had the practice of like, he never talks bad about anyone. And so I will be like, be like Shaka. And, I will like literally keep a tally of like, hella negative, neggy, 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 three <laughs> negatives. And then be like, what can I say that's positive about anyone or anything? And so I'll be like, anyone know Lisa Anderson? She's amazing. <laughs> and they're like, I don't know that person, what are you talking about? Or like at a football game. And I'm like, well, let me tell you all about Lisa Anderson. Right, and like being an intentional, being somebody who uses joy to intervene in spirits of negativity and of, and of where we are addicted to tearing ourselves asunder. Use joy as a weapon. Pretty much. I can't believe there's other questions on this panel because I'm feeling full already. I'm in the club, I'm drinking too much. I'm like, oh, what's going on? <sighs> so the next question is about uh, social movements for liberation, a, a thing that folks might have a couple thoughts about on this panel. Um, and I was thinking about how, like, 
I mean, it has been the honor and joy and grace of my life to be trained into and asked to make a lifetime commitment to movements. I still honor that. And I'm still in love uh, like I was 20 years ago when I didn't know shit about what I was doing, but it's been a really hard relationship. And I was telling Malkia earlier, I was like, then, you know, when they try to break up with you on a Tuesday, you try to break up with them on Tuesday, and Friday they're like, oh, well, I'll see you at 5. I'll pick you up for a drink. And then by the time it's Friday, damn, if you are not ready to go again and, like, get in the car and go, you know? And I think, I think about that a lot in this time. And the question that I have for you all is, given how hard they can be on our spirits, how are you doing the work that is still yours to do inside of social movements? How do you actually um, resource and sustain um, that role? So let's go Gina, and then Malkia, and then Malachi. I'm a solo practitioner. Um, and um, so my time in, in and out of spaces has been um, a call, a call for support, a call for help, a call to hold space, a, a call to help grief move through a space. And, um, and so, and I spend a lot of time alone. Um, in my home um, or with um, my daughter, um, once in a while with friends. But it feels like that's the path. I'm, I mean, lone, not lonely, although sometimes lonely. And I've learned to find the medicine inside of that because I believe there is medicine in everything. And, um, and so that question, what I think about, Caitlin, is coming into spaces and where folk are and some of the harm that I've seen inside of these spaces. Um, and, um, and my response, um, sometimes it's um, an urgent call, so I feel like a first responder, and, um, is to bring folk back to their own bodies. You know, in these circles, in these groups, um, we were talking um, earlier about um, when there's disruption or discord, uh, the go-to would be to blame um, for myriad reasons, family. You know, we, we are so afraid of accountability for myriad reasons. And, um, and really those reasons can be particular to whomever is standing in front of me. Um, I, I almost always trace it back to something from either lineage line or something from early childhood. Really, and when I, when I am inside of spaces where folk are not being accountable and being unkind and tearing each other up, when I get to sit with folk, invariably, we will trace that back to that time when I was 12 years old and, or this trauma stuck here, or, and, and so, um, I have found that daily practice, daily practice is a key to salvation. What is your daily practice? Um, when you rise in the morning, do you reach for the device? Uh, do you take a few moments to breathe into your body? Do you meditate? Um, do you pray? How do you pray? How do you take a knee if you take a knee? How do you bow? Is that, that feels like an essential practice to me as well. And it could be that 
gorgeous redwood in your backyard. I mean, I see God in all of us. I see God everywhere. Um, and that's my practice. And so, but in, in, in spaces I come in, I hold, and then I go. I go, so I'm not affiliated with one organization. When the unique um, opportunity of that is I get to work with folk who are doing all kinds of work, adjacent or just, I'm focused on food justice, I'm focused on reproductive justice, I'm, you know, and sometimes folks aren't talking to each other across these lines. Um, but the consistency of grief and exhaustion um, is the same. Um, and so, you know, there's no um, magic knowing or answer. There's practice. There is um, coming into your body and there are all kinds of ways and practices. I practice sound, um, introducing folk or reintroducing um, folk to the sound of their own voices and the power inside of your own voice. Um, and how to use your voice in service to yourself and your own body before you bring it into a room to be of service to our larger, to the larger body. Because of course, when we walk into spaces, we're bringing all our grief and all our story. And so I have found that that's a powerful practice. Um, I am grateful, I, I just um, received a grant um, to do work around reproductive justice in, in the South. And so it feels to me like now I have an opportunity to come into spaces before folks are falling out, you know, and, um, and be inside of these practices and introduce and share these practices from my altar to your altar on, on wellness and wholeness and how to let things go, how to evict those things from yourselves that have taken up residence that attach to the grief in the world, and, that's, and it feels so big and so much. Um, when often I find it's that three-year-old who's sitting under the table because this horrific thing just happened, you know? And so when we're faced with the grief, we're that, in that moment again, the body of memory. And so, um, So constancy, the constancy of practice, daily practice, centering yourself, really. I know the word self-care has been deeply co-opted. But centering yourself, centering yourself the way you are centering the movements that you are inside of, you know? And leading with that, really leading with that. You know, yes, I'm gonna go and be on that front line, but first I'm gonna have a, an amazing breakfast. And, and then I might soak in the tub for 30 minutes. And like creating the spaciousness for that, um, often too inside of spaces, I find that there's um, donation of self. You know, I'll give you my lungs. Here's my womb. You know, I'll make some space on my liver for that thing. Um, I am, um, you know, being extreme. Uh, but just to point out what I have seen, like we keep, we keep swallowing it. Um, and, um, and we must not do that. And so figuring it out through practice and inside of community and, um, and introducing ourselves to our voices so that we can ask for help or we can say that no or we can say that yes. And, and so these are all just, it's daily practice. It's, it's not, it doesn't happen like this. I've been practicing for many years. I stay in practice. 
I stay in practice because this construct that we have co-created is rather terrifying. So I must stay in practice. So I, I hope that, you know, I, I realize that, oh, I'm not, I'm affiliated with any organizations. I go in and out of the spaces and I, yeah. So, yeah. Wonderful. Okay. So the question is, how do I sustain myself? In this do work. I sustain your myself? Role, your role in this work. <laughs> um, in the past 18 months, I have attended to five deaths. Um, my friend, Art, um, who... Anyway, my friend Art, my wife, my god sister, my uncle, and um, a friend of mine who I became health proxy to. Um, and, and that happened last, last week, last week and a half. Um, I tell you this because I, I, I say this because um, that's not all the grief. Right, there's all the childhood stuff, right? There's all the, I don't even think about that. I'm so focused on what's happening now, you know, but there's all of the social, um, the environmental stuff, you know, the day-to-day the -day, um, aggressions that you experience, that I experience. And um, within all of that, you know, you're supposed to go to work be a professional. Now, I can say with all honesty, I am not a professional. Um, sometimes I wish I was. Um, maybe things would have been easier for me. But I'm not. Uh, I'm an organizer for show. And, you know, I was raised in social movements. But I'm not a professional, you know. And so, um, the thing that has been most important for me in terms of um, sustain, sustaining me has been my authenticity. Um, what's true is that I don't lie. Um, it's, it's been a problem for me in the past. My mother told me, you know, think about truth in terms of whether or not people need to hear it at that time, you know. But um, on the other hand, it's, it's been a useful thing now that I've honed it a little bit, you know, um, in that I, I find that telling the truth about myself um, creates less room for me to worry about what's what's wrong with other people. I, I deal with the mirror. That's my primary relationship. And it's also, if, I, if I'm dealing with critique, if I'm critiquing you, it's because my spirit is wrong. Something is, you know. And there's a place for critique. Don't get me wrong, you know. 
Critique is necessary, just like conflict is necessary. It helps us grow. Contradiction is required for us to learn. That's how we learn, through mistakes and contradictions. But, but I think what I'm trying to say is that I, I've been more concerned with my own growth and my own challenges. And um, I've been very transparent about those. And I think that that's actually something that's not valued very much in the movement. We say mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we value it, but in fact, we tell people to leave their stuff at the door. Yep. We say that we're about healing from trauma, but you don't really want somebody traumatized in your organization, right? You know, you know because traumatized people behave badly. That's just the truth. You, so, so we have to find a, we have to figure it out, you know, in terms of thinking about what kind of, what we're building at, in terms of building movements. If we understand that white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism, these are violent structures. They are abusive structures and they demand an abusive relationship. And we understand that we are both surviving, we are victimized, we are surviving, and we are participating in all of that. Then, then, then sustaining myself becomes like self-acknowledgement and authentic reflection becomes a part of how I continue. Did that make sense? Um, I write on Facebook a lot. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's it's stupid. I mean, I write to my wife, you know, I, I write. But I, I do it in part because it's a way for me to take public inventory. Um, and I do take public inventory because I believe the idea of, of uh, hide nothing from the people, you know. And I, I think boundaries are important, don't get me wrong. You know, need boundaries. And I'm not talking about not having a private life. That's not what I mean. I, I mean that so much of the things that happen to us and that we experience and that we feel, they're actually part of our public life. Mm -hmm. They're part mm -hmm. of our work. They're part of our effort at change. And, and too often, I, I believe, organizers and, and, and movement leaders hide behind this wall of, like, um, intelligence, intellect, analysis, being correct, you know? And I think that that wall actually is part of alienation. It's not actually part of the movement, you know, part of building movement. Yep. I think it's, it's a problem. So authentic self-reflection is one of the ways. Um, the second thing that's been most important to me um, has been laughter. My wife was a comedian. Uh, it's one of the things she was. She was a stand-up comic. And, um, you know, when she was in hospice, and, uh, you know, Malachi was there for some of this, and she, we would need to do things to her that was very painful. She, she had, the cancer was in her spine, so it was extremely painful. She suffered. And what she demanded in order to deal with the suffering was that we sing... The Brady Bunch theme song, you know, or the Facts of Life theme song, or whatever, some kind of, you know, sitcom theme song. 
as loud as possible, you know? And that's, that's how we lived, you know? Everything between us was funny and fun. Um, and I found that in the, in the, in the, in the uh, seven years that we were together, my work improved. Um, my organization's budget expanded. My, my work was better because I was happy. So my, my joy was part of my sustaining my work. You know, making me having a life, a family, my own family, meant that my leadership was improved. And so I think that, you know, one of the things about, um, you know, we, we expect people to, to step in and, and be an executive director. And I know myself, I just was dropped into that role. You know, I wasn't, I didn't ascend into that role in any way. Uh, I didn't know what I was doing, you know, 20 years ago. I hope I know something now, you know. But, but for most of that time, I was miserable. I can honestly say I was fighting, uh, I, was, I was doing, I, I'm, I'm great at campaigns, I was winning, but I was unhappy. And when I, when I, when I fell in love with my wife, I became happy. And so I'm, I'm trying to say that um, not just that romantic love is, is the uh, answer, but I'm saying that your family, the things that you care about, you know, whether maybe it's your garden, maybe it's, I, I don't know what it is, you know, but it's, it's the things that give your life meaning beyond the work, because the work is not enough. It's just not enough. And that's why I quit, because it wasn't enough. And I don't know what's next, you know. Maybe next I'll work in a hospice, or maybe next I'll, I don't know what I'm going to do next. But I know, what I know for a fact is that without that family, without that garden, without that pet, without those friends, it doesn't mean anything. It's unimportant. If you're not fighting, if you're not living freedom, then what's the point of fighting for freedom? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So that's, that's what sustains me is building my life right now in the vision of what, I'm, what I want. Way to go. <laughs> Woo! Okay. Uh, I'm really stuck after listening to these answers. Um, oh, time's up. I'm just gotta... <laughs> Keep them. Next question. <laughs> Back to Melky. <laughs> um, all right. Um, so on staying in, uh, I thought a lot about this, this question in the last couple hours. Um, and I think, uh, like many of us, we choose to head straight into sites of suffering as something we do sometimes the majority of hours of every day. And I think there's a lot of people that are good people that don't choose that. And I think that when I think back on some decades of work, getting children out of prisons. Uh, I think about the, uh, the trauma and how we carry that in our bodies and our spirits and our souls. And I was thinking about, well, what is the opposite of that? Uh, and I thought a lot about sanctuary. Kind of ironic, Auburn, <laughs> into sanctuary. 
that it made me think about where do I find my sanctuary. There's this word, equimenial. You're all spiritual people. Equimenical, right? Thank you. I was thinking about the equimenical spirits of solidarity and love. Right, and it's not like out of a certain tradition or anything, but it's that like something similar to what you're describing. When you know you are in the arms of a beloved community uh, or beloved presence, what that can do. And so I thought a lot about how I stay in is that for me, the relationships are everything. And those who have organized with me, I've probably pissed you off because I've probably been like, oh, this is the agenda? We're not doing that. Because the people right in front of us demand something different. What we thought about when we strategically planned four years ago has not shit to do with what's going on today. It's horrible, it's sad, sad. We have all these systems and papers and we think very well. But to me, relationships and caring for each other as primary over a deliverable or a agenda is what brings me joy. Sometimes it's in the horror of the face of the facilitator. <laughs> How could you do that? You know, I'm like, oh, we rocking today. We gotta stretch. Um, it's too much. Um, but also, like, what was deep is I came in here with a very heavy heart. I came in here, like, having, being in one of those spaces with our beloved movement actors where we are quick to anger, uh, where the, the pain is very up top, and the people that we blame for our pain are sitting right in front of us. And I felt like I didn't do enough. Uh, I didn't mediate to happiness, you know? And then somebody ran up here when I was walking through those damn doors and said, thank you so much for your work this weekend. It was so important and impactful and fantastic. I was like, what the fuck is happening? Did Lisa pay this person? What's going on? Right? But it was wild to me, one, that when you are in right relation with folks, how fast that word travels. This person wasn't even in that state yesterday with me. I had no idea that they would even be connected to that formation. And I realized, when I look around even this room, Malkia, maybe known since maybe 2001, 1999, be like Prince. Um, Caitlin, maybe 2003. Lawrence, maybe 2011. Um, Emmanuel, maybe 2014. And so to me, the relationships have to be at the center of our strategies, that how we form our organizations, and how we form our plans. I don't really wanna look at another campaign plan that talks about anything in Oakland, that doesn't think about how we can share our excess of housing or clothing. It's something that doesn't sit in our interdependence and the abundance we actually have to share. 
I don't want to look at your fucking campaign plan about whatever it is. And so I think the biggest one is relationships to me, and the second one is around being humble uh, and leaning into fault. It keeps me in that when people have critique <laughs> and when they're coming, this sucks and you suck and this org sucks, I'd be like, it does. <laughs> I do. We all are a disaster. <laughs> it's pretty much true. I got hella issues. Poncho got issues. Breed love. Pleather pants, not an issue. Other issues, okay? I'm just the saying, great outfit, but ever also liked issues. an outfit I've ever yeah. worn. In I have years. issues. Thank you. We have issues, right? And our our desire, I think, as like leaders and feeling like the weight of all of this burden and importance and all of, everything's on fire is when we see that we want to just put water on the fire. We want to. We almost actually want to control and suppress the problem. Yes. And instead, we have to be like wildlings and lean into the fucking problem. Yeah. Be like, there is no control and there is no suppression. There is only growth and generativeness. And so let's lean into what has happened. Let's bring in the appropriate supports. But let's create something new out of what we've done fucking wrong. Mm. Okay. Well, I'm going to be like that and be organic and mix it up. So we're going to do one more question. And then uh, we're going to do, we're going to close out. And then if folks have questions, comments, thoughts, let's not do the thing where we run up on every individual question on the panel. But there will be time. You know, folks can be together. Um, so the final remix I have on the last question is... I was sitting here thinking, like, oh, my God, we need more of this. Not that anyone in movement thinks we need more panels, per se, as a structure. <laughs> Not that anyone's like, that is saving us. Uh, but <laughs> like, I was like, what are you saying? This is what I'm talking about. Um, but the transfer and dialogue of this kind of conversation that actually does make an intervention on some of the stuff that I see in here every day. And also actually engages some counterweight space around what's become some of the incredibly normalized toxicity, right? right? Uh, incredibly normalized. And so my question is, you know, what is your hope for what you want to see proliferate in movement right now? Specifically going into 2020 for all the different things uh, those four numbers together mean for different people in this room. I don't think they mean the same thing for everyone. I don't think the consequences are the same for everyone. I don't think the time frame or even the way we're thinking about time is the same in the same kind of way. Uh, I live in Arizona. I am completely not from there and I make a home there. And so it means something really fucking specific to me right now and my two-year-old kid. So I hold that in a very specific way, but I say it more broadly knowing that it doesn't mean the same thing for everybody in the same kind of way, right? But my question is, what is your hope for what you want us to proliferate in movement as we move into this time? So we're going to start with Malkia, then go Gina, then go Malachi. And we're going to close out. Okay. 
So I'm in this grief group, right? And, you know, in that group, uh, we talk about what happened, you know? Each one of us talks about what happened. And one of the things that um, often comes up is a lot of people in that group have lost their job. They lost their housing. Um, because you know, you, you, you primary, you're a caregiver for somebody, you're living with them, you're not working, you're taking care of them, they die, now you ain't got no place to live, you know? Or you go to work and you're a caregiver, so you're working like I did from hospital rooms and, you know, infusion centers and, you know, um, bedsides and, you know what I'm saying? Like, you can't travel because you can't be away for that long and you can't afford private care. You know what I'm saying? Like, it just, and so you lose your job. Um, you're suffering and so you get disciplinary action. You, you flash on people, you know. Um, now, my organization, and I am at the, I was at the helm of it. So it's my responsibility. I am the one who could have made this change, but I didn't. My organization has no um, infrastructure in place to deal with that. Does yours? So that's one thing. You know, I think that we need to think about grief differently. I think that we need to create infrastructure to support and manage grief in our organizations. I think that there's absolutely no reason really to work five days a week, honestly. That's capitalism. That's telling you that's how you're supposed to work. You know, if we got choices, we are in charge. We can make the change. We can do it differently. So why don't we? That's one thing. The other thing that I want to see proliferate is, um, look, I think about, you know, how um, the FBI used uh, Martin Luther King's uh, cheating as a, uh, as a tool to discredit him. And he was cheating. That's, that's true. When they didn't make that up, that was happening. Because patriarchy is the number one wedge in social movements, in my opinion. Okay, relate because relationships. That's how um, surveillance works. It interferes with relationships. Now, back in the day, they used you know snail mail and they used snitches. They put the snitch jacket on. You know what I'm saying? Like they used um, infiltrators and, and agents. You know, today they might use technology and other 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 tools. But the fact is that when your relationships are poor, you, your ability to be divided is, is, is extreme. And so I, I would like to see um, a renewed focus on relationships. I would, like to, I would like us to think about relationships as the smallest unit of security. I would, like to think, I would like us to think about relationships as the only way, like an organized community is a community built on relationships. Like that's the way I, I think we need to move. Um, I think we need to reorganize our campaigns. I think we need to reorganize our programs in order to center 
relationships because then we wouldn't fire people who flash because they lost, you know, they, they lost their mama. You know what I mean? Like we would do something else for them, something different. Um, and I think the last thing that, that I want to see is I want us to stop blaming ourselves for our inability, uh, our, 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 for, for the ways that we have to date failed to care for each other and care for ourselves and start blaming the real culprits white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism. I'm saying like, we can sit up here and talk about self-care. We can sit up here, and people have done this with me, Tell, told me, you need to take better care of yourself. You're right, so are you gonna come take care of my wife while I take better care of myself? So the thing is, it's, it's blame is not useful. It just ain't, it's not useful. It feels good, but it's just not useful. So um, I would like to see us begin to, to place responsibility where it belongs. And at the same time, in doing so, build our agency um, towards our own care and make that care collective process um, something that's supported through infrastructure and institutions. I would like to see healers on site. You know, um, when I go into organizations and hold circles or work one-on-one -on -one with folk and I'm given the tour, this is our kitchen, I want to be, and this is where our healer sits and holds space and folk come during the day to grieve or to move um, whatever is on their hearts, whatever is feeling burdensome and to be held. I would love to see that. I, I know the, the value and the power of it. Um, and also, I would love to be in spaces. It's happened recently, which um, is why it's on my spirit, where it's all done in circle, um, um, a, a convening, uh, breaking out in small groups. And over here, <laughs> my trial <laughs> wasn't intended, though. Um, and then over, over in one corner, um, there is someone actually doing work, laying hands, um, 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 or sound, or whatever it is, whatever the medicine is that the practitioner is offering inside of the convening, inside of um, the circle. And I had the grace of, of, of experiencing that recently, so I got to see what it looked like. Um, um, and, um, and it was amazing. It didn't stop the flow. I, I sat, a woman came and laid in front of me, and over here folks were meeting and laughing and doing their thing and strategizing, and then on this side, folk were like in a huddle, and like it was all happening at the same time. And you know, she got some, some medicine and she um, moved some grief and, and, and said she had just had an operation and she had come and because she wanted to be, you know, she had to keep being a part of what was happening to move this work forward. Um, and she put her body at risk um, and she knew that. And she was, I'm so relieved to see you and just laid in front of me. Got some time and got up and went back to her circle. And, you know, and that was for, for all the reasons, touch, love, being seen, um, being held, being reflected, all of those things, um, and having that sound medicine 
which is what I could give her, but Reiki practitioners or, or all, all the beautiful offerings, you know, I would love to see that um, at every circle, in every meeting, in every office. And, and, and also not in secret, not in, like, yeah, grief is a part of living and being able to be held and witnessed in it and move it out of the body creates so much incredible opportunity. Um, and so, yeah, I would love to see that. Okay, it's a big question. Um, I think part of how I think about this is very rooted in uh, where I was born and raised. So welcome here to the Bay, to Oakland, for those who come from, from somewhere else, from afar. Um, we have a beautiful, a beautiful reality, um, but that often I think of the, the political work and the movement here as a symphony of failure. Because we have a million instruments in our orchestra. You can't walk down the street, let alone after gentrification, movement gentrification. But leftists everywhere, movement people everywhere, nonprofits everywhere. You know, it's, it's uh, some people call it like a bubble, um, which like would be cool if we had some power. <laughs> but like, what does it mean to have like lefties, revolutionaries, like, uh, my che hat. We can't elect more than like maybe one and a half progressive city council people. <laughs> what the fuck is that? We have like the most tense cities going up yeah. everywhere, yeah. right? How much disproportionately does the coast get of national giving? We got like 70% of the nonprofit resources right here. And this is like where we're at. So I think how I think about it is very informed of where I've been born and raised. And I think it's also informed by my experiences of like being that queer gaby who's like spare changing and Castro, watching like people come out of their like fifty hundred dollar lunches and not and maybe throwing us a nickel. And I, I had these like dreams when I was younger that like maybe because I was I'm like a preacher's kid and like kind of grew up in in uh, kind of the far right and I had a, like an idea of like the Castro like I would be able to go there. Yeah. And I thought, I pictured in my mind like this kind of like middle-aged gay white man like handing me an apple. It's like very Adam and Evie in a weird way. <laughs> I swear to God, like literal, you know? And I thought like that's where the like, that's where the like evil slash really great people will be. You know what I mean? Like this is where the, where I'm supposed to be like, oh. And then realizing like the, the reality of the situation and the hordes of other queer homeless, uh, queer and trans youth that are homeless that live all around in the streets around the most predominant gay street of any mega city that has the most wealth in the country. And so when I think about these things, I think about uh, one, that we have to start organizing where we are it's weird to me that I like sit in my little home office and I'm like working on political projects 
across the country or the world, and I don't really know who my neighbors are. <laughs> like, we just moved, so like, okay, you know, a little grace there, but really, like, our work in our nonprofits, we are, like, outside of where the reality of everyday people are. And I think until we start to organize around our own independence and the people who are actually living and breathing and next to us, we are gonna keep missing the mark. Um, and I think about that culture and practice come first and then policies and systems, right? And so if we created a reality in Oakland where everyone shared their excess of X, Y, or Z, or we started doing cooperative ownerships because we made it so, then what would housing policy begin to look like, right? But we wanna have the right line to develop the right policy to save the day. So if I had my way, we would do our work completely inverse to how we are doing it now. Um, and I think we would build organizations for mass engagement. So like right now, either you're like the lumpen proletariat, homeless, desperate, desperate, uh, just totally fucked, or you're like sort of um, a helper, right? Like, and that is who is mostly like people seek to engage in our work. And until we build vehicles and projects big enough so that the daycare worker, the dog walker, the doula, the doctor, the richie, the poorie, everybody in between, my hairdresser, a colorist, could actually participate in our movement and in our work and in our political work. If we aren't building organizations that are broad enough that we could actually plug in all of our relations, we will stay small, we will stay insignificant with our 10 friends who are really smart. So I will just say the last thing is that we should actually govern I think I came up in a very lefty leftiness and in a time generation coming in the movement that was like, fuck voting, fuck the man, systems, uh, you know, I'm an anti-capitalist, I'm all these things. And uh, then we kind of like let the Nazis take over. That was a mistake. <laughs> so I'm very interested in how do we actually do work that is interconnected to those that literally are next to us. And that when we build organizations that deal with the fact that so-and-so doesn't have childcare or so-and-so is losing their job because their wife is ill, and we attend to that, and that's our strategic plan, then we will have organizations big enough that masses can plug in because the hairstylist is like, my brother is sick and I also need that. And then we will have enough power because we have enough people. We can win any damn election in any fucking city. And then we can govern how our people deserve. Mm. All right, y'all. Oh. <laughs> that mic just wants to be. Yeah. yeah. Just wants to be on the floor. It's feeling the energy. So my my uh, parting wish for this group tonight, when I think about um, all three of y'all, um, I think about what it means to have the courage to go 
inside the body, all the bodies, where it really hurts, where it's really bleeding, where it's really coming from. And I think about what Malkia, you said in the first part of this conversation around what it means that we're actually, when we knock doors, what we're asking people to do is take a risk on us that means they're moving through suffering, that there could be a possibility that we're bringing something that's actually good, matters, or meaningful to their door, and that is not a given. Every single relationship we have, every moment of trust is something that we have to earn. We have to think about how we're actually worthy of it. So my hope for us tonight in this process in Mountaintop, my hope for my, myself, because I sure know I need it um, many times, is that we actually be worthy of, of making that ask to folks, right? And that we actually take all of the resourcing and gifts we've been given and all the possibilities we have, and also all the suffering and understanding and pain that we have for where a lot of our folks are, and we're able to bring that bring that into the work, and that we're able to do it in a way that is not only privatized, because that's the other thing I think about when I hear Malachi. This whole conversation about public and private, y'all. Private just means it's only for a couple people. Right. Public means it's for everybody. Right. The reason that we're getting our ass handed to us by the next generation is that they know that, and the sooner we're willing to admit that, the sooner we're gonna be in a different kind of way, because private is just another way to talk about that it's only for a couple folks, right? right? And so how do we actually then make that a public commitment that it's not just for our buddies mm -hmm. and the 10 people we like, like Malachi was talking about, is for everybody, even people that were like, not really into you. Um, and that we're actually able to, to do the work of accompaniment that our comrade Pancho teaches me about again and again, then I forget, then he, he helps me understand it again and again, right? in a way where we're actually thinking about what is that privilege to get to accompany our folks, not always telling them what to do, not always thinking we know best, but actually it is divine, it is a gift to get to accompany them, just to get to walk with them and the struggles that they have. And how does that move us and touch our lives? How does that move us along when we think that we don't have anything, anything left for it? We don't have anything left for it. So I hope you will, will join me in showing some appreciation for this panel. Thank you all so much for listening. That was a beautiful episode. It was great for me to get a chance to re-listen to it. Um, please check out the other episodes that are in our sort of older pre-archival pack here of season four. There's some great, some great folks um, coming up and more. So if you want to, please enjoy the rest of the season. For transcripts and more resources for fortification, as usual, visit auburnseminary.org front slash fortification. And fortification is a co-production of Auburn Seminary and Side with Love which is a campaign of the Unitarian Universalist Association. And it literally happens because of Nora Resman with additional support from moi and David Beasley, Dan Greenman, and Nora are audio engineers for this work. David Beasley is our editor.